you have your Bibles today, we're going to um, finish uh, the book of Joshua. Uh, we're going to take chapters 23 and 24 and kind of take a broad overview. And let me just tell you a little bit about what's going on. Joshua convenes two different meetings. And in those two meetings, he essentially is giving his last words uh, to the people of Israel because he's getting old. He knows that his days are numbered and um, he's, he's given his last words. And so I want to it got me to thinking about famous last words uh, of, of different people. And here's a couple and just see if it piques your interest. Sir Isaac Newton, um, when he died, this is what he said. Um, I don't know what I may seem to the world, but as to myself... I seem to have been only like a boy playing on the seashore and diverting myself now and then in finding a smoother pebble or a prettier shell than the ordinary, whilst the great ocean of truth lay all undiscovered before me. I mean, Mr. Physics, Isaac Newton himself, right? I just felt like I was sitting there dabbling in things when I had all of this stuff still undiscovered. That was powerful. Um, in case you're not the scientist, maybe you're the artist, here's Leonardo da Vinci. I have offended God and mankind because my work did not reach the quality it should have. Glad he didn't look at my little stick figure drawing, right? <laughs> my work did not reach the quality it should have. Uh, according to his sister, Steve Jobs, as he stepped off of this earth and into the eternity that he faces now. He said this, oh wow, oh wow, oh wow. My, my favorite, um, probably my favorite last word. Um, I grew up in Huntsville, and so Sam Houston is a big part of that and a big part of the lore there. Um, his, his last words as he's dying um, were, Texas, Texas. Margaret, his wife. I mean, so much passion, right, for everything that he had given to the cause uh, of, of the freedom of, the republic of, and then the state of Texas. So much passion. And then he turns to his wife, who had lived with him through all of it. Texas, Texas, Margaret. Love that. These words that we'll see today, these are Joshua's last words. And so they carry with them some weight and um, here is the essence of it for you and for me, is that there is a choice to make. And, and the choice is very simple, and it's very stark. And that is, we can follow the Lord, or we can follow the gods of the world. There's this broad, wide path that many people are walking down, and they're walking alongside many gods of the world. And for the Israelites, they had names for their gods like Chemosh and Molech and all these kind of people, um, all these different gods that the, that the pagan neighbors around them worship. They, had, they, were, they lived in a polytheistic society. There were many gods. Um, and then there was the Lord, Yahweh, Jehovah, God. And Joshua is very clear. He says, you can follow this broad, wide path with all of these other gods, or you can follow this much more narrow path with the one true God, the Lord. That's the choice for them. And that's the choice for you and for me, is that there is this stark, clear choice that you and I have to make. We'll talk about this in just a moment, but every day we get to make this choice, whether or not we follow the kind of whims and fancies and even cultural pressures that the world gives us, and we walk with many other people in this broad place, or we follow the Lord on a much more narrow and at times lonelier path. 
And Joshua says, you have a choice to make. In light of all the things that you've seen God do, in light of all the things that you've heard God said, you have a choice to make. And church family, I think the Lord is saying that to you and to me today. I mean, Joshua has been a great study, has it? I mean, it's been a terrific study, I think. In light of all the things that we've seen God do, and in light of all the things that we've heard God say, we have a choice to make. And the choice is whether or not we will follow the gods of this world, or we will follow God the Lord. And, and walk in his ways. And so obviously, we're gonna, uh, Joshua will advocate for this. I'm going to advocate for this this morning. Following the Lord is the way to go. And I'm going to give you three reasons out of these two chapters, chapters 23 and 24. First reason is because of who he is. We follow the Lord because of who he is. We don't follow the gods of this world because of who they are, but we follow the Lord because of who he is. And I'll just point you um, in chapter 23, we're going to start in verse 3. Um, and you have seen all that the Lord your God has done to you, excuse me, done to all these nations for your sake. For it is the Lord your God who has fought for you. Behold, I've allotted you as an inheritance um, uh, for your tribes, those nations that remain, along with all the other nations that I've already cut off from the Jordan to the great sea in the west. Verse 5, the Lord your God will push them back before you and drive them out of your sight, and you shall possess them, just as the Lord your God promised you. And on and on he'll go. In fact, 13 times. In the 16 verses of chapter 23, he says, the Lord your God, the Lord your God, the Lord your God. We follow him because of who he is. We choose to follow because of who he is. Who is he? He's the Lord your God. What does that mean? I think this is what Joshua was pointing to and why he says it over and over and over again. He's wanting to remind his people. He's wanting to remind them in his last words, this kind of thing before he steps out of life and into the next, this life and into the next life. He's wanting to remind them this. Um, He's the Lord your God. He is the one who has pursued relationship with you. You haven't woken up one day and gone, oh, I think I'll just kind of go this. God is the one who's pursued you. He's the one who's rescued you. He's the one who's initiated that relationship with you. He is the one who has stepped out on your behalf. He is the one who's moved towards you. He is the one who has pursued you. He is the Lord your God. And I say that to you this morning to say this. Some of you think you're in this room because it's raining outside or because somebody drug you by the ear here or whatever. That's not the case. You're in this room because God is in hot pursuit of you. And some of you have never been to church before, maybe. And some of you, this is like old hat. You're in the room today because God is in pursuit of you. His heart beats with white hot passion to be in relationship with his people and his people, the people that he's after, the people that he's pursuing includes you. You're here because of that. He is the Lord, your God. That's why Joshua says it over and over and over and over and over again. 13 times in 16 verses, the Lord your God. He's in pursuit of you. Secondly, skip, if you will, to chapter 24. This is in the second meeting, in the second uh, uh, speech, if you will, the second call that Joshua gives. Uh, but he, he says three more things about him in chapter 24, verse 19. But Joshua said to the people, you are not able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. When he says you're not able to serve, what he's not meaning that literally, what he's saying is, hey man, you better take this seriously. This is no trite thing. This is not a trifle. This is not something you just kind of, oh yeah, 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 that seems like, this is not cotton candy, man. This is the real stuff, okay? This is, this is I mean, meat on the bone stuff. You've got to hold on to this. Be serious about this. You're, be serious about serving him. Why? Because he's a holy God. He is a holy God. And when you think about holiness, some people have all sorts of concepts about holiness. Just remember this, that he is unlike anyone or anything you've ever encountered before. 
When by faith our eyes see God, we recognize that he is completely different than we are. He is a completely other, with a capital O, other. He's not like us. We're not like him in that sense, okay? He is very, very different, that otherness. And part of his otherness is his purity. We, when we see with eyes of faith who God is and his holiness, we're not seeing that he's distinct and different from us. We're also seeing that he's utterly pure. And of course, we're not. We don't have to look very far behind us to figure that out, do we? So we see this otherness and this purity, and what does that inspire in us? We see this just like a diamond that is, that is uh, pure with no uh, occlusions or anything like that. We see that, and we say that is a thing of beauty. And our eyes of faith, the eyes, if you will, of our soul, see God in all of his otherness and all of his purity, and we say that is beautiful, and it just captures the affections of our heart. And then we stand in awe of him. Folks, listen to me. The reason we follow him is because he's a holy God. And let me just ask you this. Can you think of anything in this world that the gods of this world would offer, that the gods of this world would set forth, that is so distinct from you, that is so pure when you are not, and that is so beautiful that it inspires all in you? No, you can't. Because they don't offer those things. They don't offer those things. God is a holy God. So we follow him because of that. Uh, thirdly, he is jealous. Look at verse, again, verse 19. <clears throat> He's a holy God. You can't serve the Lord. But be serious about this, in other words. He is a holy God. Here we go. He is a jealous God. Wait, 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 wait. <laughs> Jealousy. This is bad, right? This is bad. So why in the world would we call this jealous? Uh, in fact, um, one of the kind of, you know, people in our culture who bears a lot of influence Oprah, um, has actually said that the reason she walked away from the God of the Bible is because a pastor that she heard when she was younger preached on that God is a jealous God. She's like, I, I know what jealousy looks like. I know what it feels like. I don't want any part of that kind of God right there. Why would God be? Why would I? I cannot imagine a jealous God. Here's the thing. We don't have to imagine it. God has revealed himself to us. And one of the things that he said about us is he's a jealous God. And some people think, well, that's that's a vice, right? I mean, that's a bad deal. Like, that goes on the list of things you ought not be. I'm jealous, that's bad. And what they are talking about is indeed a sin. It's that kind of infantile or even um, uh, 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 pubescent response of, you have something and I don't, and I'm mad at you that you have it and I don't. That's jealousy. But that's not the kind of jealousy that we're talking about here. There's a different kind of jealousy. And let's just pretend that tonight you're laying in bed and somebody breaks into your house and is intending to do harm to your family and you sit there with your fingers like this and you just kind of twiddle your thumbs. And people show up and be like, hey, what happened? Well, they broke in and they did harm to my family and they stole a bunch of my stuff. What did you do? Well, I sat there like this. I didn't want to be jealous of him stealing my stuff. People would be, what in the world is wrong with you? Because what is the proper response if somebody is coming in to try to do harm to your family and to your property? To stand up and defend it. Why? Because you are jealous for the safety of your family. And that response of jealousy, where does that come from? Does it come from a hatred for your family? No. Does it come from a hatred for the person that is wanting to do harm? No. It comes from a love for your family. In this case, there is a a moral and, and justifiable fruit of love that expresses itself at jealousy in order to protect your family. So you would say, that's not a vice, that's a, 
That's a virtue right there. That kind of jealousy is a virtue. In fact, this is the kind of jealousy that, that uh, Joshua is talking about and that is represented all throughout uh, the Old Testament. And in, in, believe me, more than one place in the New Testament where, where God speaks of himself as a jealous God, a jealousy not born out of inadequacy or I don't have this or I'm missing something here, but a jealousy born out of the fruit of love for his people. He's saying, if the, in Joshua's case, he's saying, if you let all of these other gods in, these gods of this world to do all of this kind of thing. Evil and havoc and wickedness and immorality and all sorts of terrible things uh, will come to bear on the people. So what am I going to do? Just sit idly by and let that happen? No, I'm a jealous God. I'm going to step out in love to protect my people. He's a jealous God. There's a reason you follow him because he wants to protect his people. Lastly, he says in verse 20 of chapter 24, if you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. He, he is an unbending God or unyielding God. He is unbending in this sense that he's not going to lower his standard. In our New Testament experience of this, we experience this as the discipline of God, meaning we don't get to change his standard. We're not going to uh, somehow uh, work something in such a way that God is going to, to yield um, to our, our, our way. He cannot be convinced otherwise. He has an unchanging standard. And you can ram your head into it 150 times or 150,000 times. It doesn't matter. You're not going to change him. Uh, was it yesterday, I believe, uh, a certain four-year-old who might live in my same house looked at her, her daddy and said, I want ice. I'm like, you don't need ice. We got these... 15 things going on, and all of a sudden she's like, I want ice. I want ice. Daddy, I want some ice. Pulling on, I want some ice. Holding up a cup. Can you give me some ice? And holding up a cup. And finally, I'm like, no, leave me alone. Because I'm such a great parent. I'm like, leave me alone. You know, that kind of thing. And like, no, I want some ice. I want some. And she just over. And that's how we treat God so much, right? It's like, oh God, I wish it wasn't this way. Or I feel like this ought to be the thing. Or this kind of, And you do it over and over and over again. As if by whining, we're going to change. Here's the thing. Uh, because I'm the dad of the year and she's got me right here. I'm like, you want some ice? Here, find now be quiet. You know, that's how that went. Parenting moment in my house. God doesn't bend like that because he's better than, he's a better dad than that. He knows that if you go the ways that he says are bad to go, it only leads to brokenness. It only leads to terrible things. It, it only leads, as, as Proverbs says, there's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, it only leads to death. In the end, it only leads to death. God doesn't want that for you, and so he's not going to yield. He is unbending in that. He, and one of the great things about that is he's so consistent with that. That's one of the reasons this is the good thing for you and me. One of the reasons it's actually a, a, a promoter, if you will, or a stoker of our desire to follow him is because we always know what we got with God. We always do. Every time we come to him, we're like, hey, is this the best way? He goes, no, not that way, this way. I've been saying this for a couple of thousand years now. Listen. Hey, is this way the best way? No, it's always this way. Well, I feel like this is, but this is the best way. He is so consistent. You can all, you always know what you get with him. That's why we follow him because he's unbending. He's so consistent. We follow him because of who he is. We choose to follow the Lord instead of following these other gods because of who he is. Secondly, we follow him because of what he's done. We follow him because of what he's done. In chapter 24, Joshua recounts all the things that God has done. Uh, look, if you will, in verse 2. 
and he's going to recount Israel's history. And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates. Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. I gave him Isaac, and to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau, and gave Esau the hill country of Seir to possess. But Jacob and his children went down to Egypt, and I sent Moses and Aaron, and I plagued Egypt with what I did in the midst of it, and afterward I brought you out. And then from verse uh, 6 there down to verse 13, he continues this uh, recounting of all the things that God has done. What has he done? What's the primary thing that Joshua is reminding them of? And it is this, that God has delivered. God saw his people in bondage and slavery, and he wasn't going to tolerate that. He reached down into the Egyptian political and sociocultural systems, and he said, no, 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 no. Those are my people. Come on out. By his power, he delivered them. And in the New Testament world, he reached down into the sin and muck and yuckiness and evil and wickedness and darkness and death that was our lives. And he reached down through Jesus and he pulls us out of all of that and gives us new life. We saw this represented right here. Every one of us was laid down in the grave by our sin, deserving of death. But what does Jesus do? He goes into the grave and pulls us out along with him. Amen to that? God is the deliverer and he has delivered. And if you're in here and you're a follower of Jesus, that's a good thing to remind yourself of and kind of, again, stoke the fires, if you will, uh, in your life to say, hey, God has delivered me. And so we sit in circles and we sit around tables and we have lunch over chips and queso and we say, this is what God has done in our life. And it's good to remind us, uh, remind ourselves that God has delivered. And if you're in here this morning and you've never Put your trust in Jesus. Just know that God's looking down on your life right now and he is willing to grab a hold of your world and pull you out of darkness and into light, pull you out of death and into life. And if you turn to him and trust him, he will do that for you just like he's done it for so many of us, just like he did for Reed. He's a deliverer. Secondly, he's also a provider. Back up, if you will, to chapter 23. I did chapter 24 first because of historically it kind of comes first. Look at chapter 23, verse 4. Behold, I have allotted you as an inheritance for your tribes, those nations that remain among all the nations that I've already cut off from the Jordan to the great sea in the west. What he's doing here, Joshua is saying on behalf of God, hey, I'm providing for you. And if God's deliverance puts his power on display, his um, provision actually puts his goodness on display. He's saying to the people of Israel, I've given you a place to live. I've driven out these nations before. I've done all of these things for you to provide for you a place. And I want you to just think about this for a moment. <clears throat> if I gave you 60 seconds and a blank piece of paper and something to write with, and you could think of all of the ways that God has provided for you just this week even, you think you could fill that piece of paper up? Absolutely you could. You start thinking and listing out all the ways that God has taken care of you, all the ways that he's provided for you, all the ways that he has put his goodness on display for you. You could fill that up and your heart would just swell with gratitude. That's exactly what it ought to do. God has delivered. And because he's delivered, we follow. God has provided. And because he's a provider and his goodness is on display for you and for me, we follow. Well, I mean, it doesn't feel like God's being very good right now. It doesn't feel like he's providing right now. I promise you this. God is at work, and he's doing what he's always done, delivering people and providing for them, displaying his power and showing forth his goodness. Lastly, he has kept his word to you and me. Again, in chapter 23, verse 14, this is an echo of the verse that we started with last week. 
Chapter 23, verse 14, And now I'm about to go the way of all the earth. And you know in your hearts and souls, all of you, that not one word has failed of all the good things that the Lord your God has promised concerning you. How many words had failed? Not one. Not a single one. This is exactly what we talked about last week um, in describing God's faithfulness. He has kept His word. This is His faithfulness on display. So whatever God has said, He has done. Whatever He has promised has come true. Whatever He has uh, uh, given to us, we can bank on that. When He says it, you can, you can believe it. That to say this to you. Uh, there are some who, man, who are holding on, holding on, holding on, and it feels like the very last thread of the very end of the very last part of the rope. God is, God's word has never failed. He has not failed. He promised all of these things to Israel. I'm going to deliver you out of Egypt. I'm going to get you through the promised land. I'm going to give you a place to live. And guess what? It all happened. Not one word failed. And all the promises that He's given to you, not one word has failed is failing, or will fail. When he delivers us, he puts his power on display. When he provides for us, he puts his goodness on display. And when he keeps his word, he is displaying for us his faithfulness. No, they're gods of this world, but none of them are powerful and are good and are faithful like the Lord. So we follow him because of what he's done. Lastly, we follow him because if you drift, you won't actually follow. We have a choice to make today because of who he is, because of what he's done, and because if we settle for spiritual drift, we won't end up following. Nobody accidentally trips and falls into discipleship. Like nobody becomes an apprentice to Jesus. Nobody becomes a person who follows Jesus and walks with Jesus on accident. There has to be an intentional cause, like a, a decision to make that happen. Um, NBC coverage notwithstanding, have you enjoyed the Olympics? I love that stuff, man. Love that stuff. And you just tell me if you're with me on this, a little weird like this, because I know a couple of you are. I just know that you are. In fact, I'm looking at a couple of you. I won't say who they are. But you're sitting there on the couch. You're watching the whatever sport it is go down, handball, which is kind of fun to watch, or uh, something else. And you're thinking, I think I could do that. Thank you very much, Lucy. I, that's exactly right. You're thinking to yourself, I think I could probably do that. And then reality washes over and you're like, eh, no, I couldn't. No, I couldn't. And it normally happens for one of two reasons. Number one, you figure out that you're not as physically talented and gifted as you maybe thought you were. Because you have to get up from the couch, and when you do so, you're like, Ugh. you're spraying WD-40 on certain body parts to get them to move. You know what I mean? This is not, you're not, I mean, you think one of the things that NBC did that was pretty cool, uh, they put the, the, the one that was blown my mind is the men's volleyball. I mean, the women's volleyball, incredible, don't get me wrong, but I mean the men's volleyball, just the specimens that they are. They put them next to the, uh, to the men's basketball team, and then they compared their vertical jumps, and oftentimes the volleyball players jumped higher than the basketball players. Incredible. Some of the guys, when they, you know, 6, 7, 38-inch vertical, some of the guys, when they hit the ball, are hitting it from like 13 feet. 13 feet. That's about like this, just to put it in perspective. I mean, and they're hitting it at 70 miles an hour at somebody. And then, of course, you've got the guy who's on the back row be like, come on, bring it to me. Bring it to 70 miles an hour, 13 feet, right here, right here. And you're like, what kind of crazy are you? <laughs> For the record, the only way I'm getting 13 feet in the air to hit a volleyball is with a ladder and a trampoline. 
Or you get the, 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 the well, and then, then you watch the folks do it in sand, like Kerry Walsh Jennings and April Ross. You're like, uh, yeah, I couldn't do that. Now that's all you say. Yeah. And then you watch the swimmers, and you're like, oh, yeah, I could, I could swim. No, you couldn't. Michael Phelps is doing his little flap thing, touching his opposite ears, you know, when he's doing his thing. And you're like, no, no, I could not do that. He's got like 12-foot-long arms, you know. He's like a human paddle boat as he's doing his thing. And you're like, I, I, I'm, not, I'm physically not built like that. One of the greatest comments I heard was uh, about Katie Ledecky, who basically, I think, won the world, this, this Olympic deal. Uh, uh, this Olympic Games, Kay Ledecky, one of the guys on the commentary says, I mean, you know, Kay, she, she swims like a man. And the guys, the other guy's like, the men wish they could swim like Katie Ledecky. <laughs> Girl power. I mean, like, seriously, like she's, I mean, she's killing it. Just amazing, unbelievable. And you think to yourself, oh, I could dive in the water and do that. About 12 meters in, you know, I'd be like, a uh, little help here. That, uh, that poor Olympic lifeguard that made all those internet memes, he'd be jumping in after me, you know? You, know, you can't do you can't do So you figure out just as a physical specimen, you're not that person. The other reason, though, is that you would never actually, I mean, it'd be awesome to win a gold medal. That's a great idea. But you would never actually put in the work to get that done. You have no intention whatsoever of getting in the pool and swimming lap upon lap upon lap upon lap upon lap. Or going out and doing all the hard work that it does to take to get into that condition, or going through all the drills um, to to you know be able to dig a volleyball that's coming at you at seventy miles an hour, or a hundred other things that you would have to do. You just have no intention. So here's the thing: if you have an idea without an intention, it's useless. And indeed, when it comes to following the Lord or following the gods of this world. If I only give lip service and, oh, it'd be nice to follow God, yeah. But don't actually choose to do that. It's a useless idea. It's a useless idea. Instead, what I have to do is make a consistent choice to follow. Let me just give you these two things. In 23, verse 11, chapter 23, verse 11. Be very careful, therefore, to love the Lord your God. Be very careful. Not just careful. Be very careful. Nobody drifts into discipleship here. Nobody falls and trips and accidentally ends up a, a follower of Jesus. You have to be very careful to love the Lord your God. And then look, look, if you will, in chapter 24, verse 14. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river, those, all those little g-gods beyond the river and in Egypt, and serve the Lord instead. Verse 15, and if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. We will serve the Lord. Choose this day whom you will serve. He makes a funny little statement here. If it's evil in your eyes to do that, why would it be evil to serve the Lord? Well, Sometimes, honestly, we think that the little g-gods that the world has to offer are more attractive than God. We, we think that they have more to bring to the table than the Lord. That's a terrible decision. It's a lie, but that's what we think. They're more attractive than God. What you'll notice, though, is that in their attraction, it never actually is able to keep our affections, whereas the Lord, he can keep our affections because of who he is and because of what he's done. Um, some people, it may be evil to serve uh, uh, the Lord, in, in, not because you find other gods attractive, but because you find following the Lord so hard. 
We've said this in here before. Let's just say it one more time. The only thing harder than following God is not following him. And some, again, I want to be really sensitive here. It's not that the other gods are attractive, and it's not that it's particularly hard. It's that you've followed, and you've experienced disappointment or anger, or somehow in some way God has offended you. And you think, man, not so sure. And in those moments right there, in those moments right there, you have the choice to say, oh, I could go on a different path, a broad path that will lead me to all sorts of terrible places, or I could continue following the one who is who he says he is, who's consistently who he says he is, who has worked and displayed for us, for all of us his power and his faithfulness and his goodness. Even though I might be offended right now, even though I might have a problem right now, even though I might be struggling right now, there's only going to be one who's going to see me through. So Joshua says, choose, choose, and not just choose, but choose this day. For all the things that God has said to us as a church family through this series, and for all the things that he's shown us through this series and in other ways, choose this day whom you will serve. And when you wake up tomorrow, you know what you get to do? Choose this day whom you will serve. You can't have it both ways, folks. Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 6. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will despise the one and be devoted to the other. There's no two paths here that you can walk on both. You have to choose this day. And Tuesday, when you're in your meeting in the afternoon and it kind of goes awry and sideways because of X, Y, and Z, and you could respond with all of these other worldly ways and follow the gods of this world, what do you have to do in that moment? Choose this day. And on Thursday and on Friday and a month from now and 10 years from now, choose this day whom you will serve. Every day we get to get up and make a choice to say, God, I'm going to follow you and not the gods of this world. And some of you are here this morning and the choice that you need to make is a choice of surrender. You need to give your life to Jesus this morning. He has already given his life for you. You need to give your life to him. I don't know if I can do all that because I got all this stuff. I promise you, Jesus knows about that stuff and he was still willing to die for you and he's still willing to receive you this morning. You turn to him in faith and say, I believe that you died on the cross for me and I believe that you rose from the dead and I am giving my life to you. I am surrendering my life to you. You know what he's going to do? He's going to receive you just as you are. But I've got all this shame. Jesus died for that shame, and he will take it and carry it for you. But I've got all this stuff. Jesus died for that stuff, and he will take it and carry it for you. Man, I'm just broken, though. You come to Jesus. I can't bring my brokenness to Jesus. Jesus takes broken people and makes them whole. That's what he does. Some of you are here, and you need to surrender. Some of you are here, and because you've got... You've already given your life to Christ, but there's this one area that just keeps spinning up, spinning up, spinning up. Every so often, it just shows up in your life. It kind of wraps you around and keeps you bound up. And some of you just need to submit to him in some area of your life. You've got an issue. You've got a a problem. You've got an addiction. You've got an area that you just need to give to him and submit to him. Again, he will take that. He will transform you because that's the business that he's in. And some of you are seeing opportunities out in front of you, and what you need is to step out and serve in those areas. Maybe it's here at church. Maybe it's not. Maybe it's at your work. Maybe it's in your neighborhood. Maybe it's in a particular relationship where you need to step out and serve. 
If God's who he says he is, and if he's done what he has said he's done, and you and I don't get the opportunity to just accidentally trip and fall into discipleship, but we have to choose this day whom we will serve. And it's time to serve the Lord. I'm going to pray, and I'm going to ask us to respond accordingly. Let's, let's uh, bow together, okay?